your favorite Grasslands PR team. <laughs> this week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Rachel. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking about Dunnerts. <laughs> oh. Do you know what those are? I think that they're a small mammal. They are a small mammal. A smammal, as some people would say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah smammals. Um, does it look kind of like a cross between an aardvark and, uh, wait, no, a tapir and a shrew? Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to send you a picture of one so you can stare at it. As we go through oh, this. Oh, it's very cute. <laughs> I know. Not a, not a tapir and a shrew. No. Uh, a shrew and a fox. All right. Sure. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. They're, they are very <laughs> shrew-like. They have giant eyes, giant ears, and like a very long pointed nose. Very cute. Shrews, shrews have tiny eyes. Well, shh. <laughs> long pointed okay, nose. Okay. How about that? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, first, before we jump into that, we've got some grassland news for you today. Something that, to me, is exciting enough that I feel like I needed to mention it in uh, our actual podcast episode. So there's a global food supply company called Bunge, which is based out of America, and they've launched this program that's completely unprecedented to benefit the Brazilian Cejado, which, as anybody who has been tracking the Cejado knows, is under a lot of threat right now, in particular because of soybeans. A lot of the Cejado is being converted into soybean crop mm -hmm. space. And so uh, this program is going to be monitoring, like, literally farm to table through their global supply chain where soybean crops are coming from and uh, are working to align their purchases of soybeans uh, to farms that are not taking those native ecosystems of the Cejado and converting them to agricultural land. So that's really freaking cool. And it's a huge step for such a big company to benefit some really high risk areas and to prevent deforestation and conversion of natural grassland into agriculture. So I am just so happy. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's, if they can make this happen, like it's paving the way for other companies to possibly follow suit. They won't really have any excuse. So. Absolutely. Because this is, again, not a small company. So if there are other large food supply companies that are saying, well, it's too hard for us because, mm -hmm. you know, we just work in so many markets. No, Bunge can do it. So can you suck it up <laughs> and benefit conservation. Yes, yes. <laughs> also, uh, subscribe to our newsletter if you want more stuff like that and updates from your friends, me and Nicole. Yes, yes. That's all. And now back to Dunnards. <laughs> looking at this little creature it's obviously a mammal but like a smammal a shmammal yes what do you think it is like is it related to shrews or whatever crazy animals you pulled out earlier like what do you think it is okay, most closely related to you said it's from australia yeah so it's a marsupial <laughs> 
Yeah, you're right. It's marsupial. <laughs> <laughs> if if you if you hadn't accidentally given away which continent it was uh-huh. from, I would have had a hard time guessing. And I don't know. There's there's some mammals that are related to freaking elephants and other weird stuff. Yeah. So I probably would have given you some crazy out of the box guess, but <laughs> Australia. Like, what else could it be? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. A marsupial. I don't know which group of marsupials. Is it a possum? No, it is not. Oh, okay. So it does look know. a lot like some South American possums, um, but they are actually very closely related. They're in the same family as uh, quals. Is that, yeah, right? Oh! And... The, like, large predators. Yeah, like, the little... A lot of them, are, they're, like, kind of cat-sized, and all of them have, like, spots or stripes. And then also the yeah. Tasmanian devil. Oh! <gasps> no! Yeah! These little itty-bitty guys are, like, more closely related to a Tasmanian devil than, like, a mouse, which is what it looks like. It just looks like a little mouse guy with, like, extra big ears. But it is not a mouse. Fascinating. Yeah. Australian taxonomy is completely out of my comfort zone. <laughs> and I'm realizing now I know nothing yeah, <laughs> about it... the marsupial taxonomic relationships. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine because there's so many marsupials in Australia, which we will get to. I want to talk about the weird things that are going on in Australia when it comes to marsupials a little bit later. But first... Mm-hmm. I want to focus on this really fascinating little mouse-sized marsupial. First of all, they're very, very cute. Love them. And there are 19 different species of dunnerts. And the one that I sent you is a fat-tailed dunnert. Um, it's one of the most... Oh, that's why its tail is so yeah. fat. <laughs> Gosh, they're cute. And uh, the, the fat-tailed dunnert is one of the uh, most common... I think, or at least it's the one of the most widely researched ones. They're also pretty common in the pet trade as well as like you can find them in zoos and things like that. So there's a lot of papers out about those guys for good reasons. Oh, fascinating. Um, yeah. But some of the other species, I'm not going to list all of them since there's 19 of them, but I just picked out my favorite ones that, like either were really cute or had really good names. So... Here is my top Dunnert species, not because of, like, natural history or anything like that, just because I liked them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the stripe-faced, the hairy-footed, the fat-tailed, and the red-cheeked Dunnert. Like, I feel like I can picture what these guys must look like, and the red-cheeked Dunnert sounds like a Pikachu. I know, right. It's not quite that intense, but it just looks like they have, like... A little bit of blush on. It's very cute. Oh, adorable. <laughs> yes. And all 19 species are all facing issues with habitat fragmentation, especially as the grasslands that they live in are being converted to farmland. So just mm-hmm. like our soybean issues in South America, Australia is no exception when it comes to grasslands being converted to farmland. And these guys are super, super small, and so they're really unable to cover large distances should a farm or a city or anything like that be built around them. They have super, super tiny home ranges, and, you know, 
I think maybe it was like 250 meters that they might travel in like their entire lifetime. <laughs> so oh, that's nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing. So they they just don't move around a lot. So it's really hard for them to survive in these landscapes that are so fragmented. If that one little area gets wiped out, you can lose an entire population or even possibly a whole species because some of the species have really small ranges as well. Um, but some mm. of them are pretty prominent throughout a lot of Australia. And a couple of them don't live in grasslands, but most of them do. Okay. Another really big threat for these guys is the introduction of novel predators such as the red fox, which was brought from Europe for fox hunting in the 1800s, and our best friend, the feral cat. So... Oof. <laughs> yeah, I was like kind of surprised when you said fox first mm-hmm. because I was like, wow, I, I was confident their biggest threat was going to be cats. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So as we all know, cats are just a horrible plague on wildlife the world over. Please keep your cat indoors. That's all we'll say on that. Yeah. <laughs> no, because here's the thing. Okay. People, I see you in the TikTok comments sections. Mm-hmm. I see you in the Facebook comments defending your outdoor cat. And I appreciate that your cat loves to be outdoors. But Nicole says plague for a reason. And there is data backing up the fact that they are a bigger threat than a lot of the other things. Absolutely. You know, it's possible for animals to have multiple threats at once. And when it's a smemel or often birds... You know, like we have we have the data for this. So I'm very sorry if it hurts your feelings because your cat likes to be outside. Mm-hmm. But just know that your cat, even if you never see it killing anything, is absolutely killing things outside. Yes. And- <laughs> your cat is a murderer. And that's just the way it is because it's a cat. It's like, no, I mean, it's not a judgment, a moral judgment on your cat. It's just doing cat things. Yes. But the cat things involve disrupting ecosystems so (laughs) yeah and it's not oh well my cat is well fed so it'd never do that like they just murder for fun a lot of animals murder for fun and cats are one of them so yeah yeah have you ever seen your cat murder its toys i mean they do that because that's what they get enjoyment out of okay (laughs) yes which is great i love cats Mm mm-hmm but yes we're just stating facts over here (laughs) (laughs) yes and there's a lot of options on keeping a happy indoor cat. You can have a cat wheel, you can play with them, you can get them a friend. Like there's plenty of enriching things that you can do for your cat and keep them indoors as well. There was actually, I don't remember what organization it was, but it was a birding organization and they were uh, giving away like uh, $100 or $200 to several individuals in a giveaway for indoor cat enrichment so like instead of this burning organization just being like keep your cats indoors they're like i will give you a hundred dollars to make your indoor cat happier so that it's not going outside and killing all the birds which i thought was really smart brilliant yeah yeah so good i love that i'll have to i'll have to look up who that was but oh yeah please do because that's amazing and i know we personally uh, Probably this is going to be the last thing I'm going to say about cats. Okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I have seen people build, like, screened-in porches for their cats outside. 
Yeah, catios. That's it. And we personally have friends that have harness trained their cats. And it's not going to be like a dog walk. It's going to be like a let the cat roll in the grass for a while while you stand there looking weird (laughs) walk. But the cats still really enjoy it. And that's definitely doable. I've Yeah. Yeah. And there's guides out there. It's not you don't just put your cat in a harness and like go to town like you have you have to desensitize them to it so it takes some time but it's worth it because that cat is gonna have so much fun so yeah (laughs) all right so (laughs) poor dunnards yes (laughs) so in in addition to habitat loss or conversion and all that fun stuff and cats and foxes they also suffer from inappropriate fire regimes which is something we've talked about before um, which is yeah, with Australia, yeah. <laughs> which and inappropriate fire regimes are fires that happen too often, are too intense, or are too widespread, or you know a little bit of all three. So again, these are very small animals with a really small home range, and if a really big fire comes through, it can wipe out a huge portion of the population. So, and this is something that has been documented. These guys just they can't handle that. So. Very sad. <laughs> Sorry mm-hmm. to start this out kind of sad. Hey, it's but, okay. That means that we only have, like, happy things to go, Yes, right? yes. It'll, it'll get <laughs> fun. So these guys, again, a lot of them live in grasslands, and a bunch of different resources mentioned them taking shelter in tussock grasses, under shrubs, or my favorite, in cracks in the soil. Oh, my gosh. Like... How big are these? <laughs> That was my first question when I read that. And, like, is this that well documented that, like, almost every single resource that I read mentioned that? Or is it just, like, a matter of everyone, like, reading it somewhere else and just, like, rewording it slightly and putting it on their website and they all have the same resources? I don't know. Uh But I choose to believe that they just really like hunkering down in little cracks in the soil because that is so cute. And I've never heard of, like... (laughs) When you look up habitat for an animal, that is not something that just, like, comes up. Like, I've never ran across that before, <laughs> except for with Dunnards. So, I just love it. It's uh, so yeah. good. <laughs> Best example of it fits Isits I've ever seen. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Cracking the soil. Squeeze. Yes, <laughs> it's so good. And you mentioned how small are they? Well... They can be, depending on species, anywhere from 10 grams to 70 grams. And so for reference, the average house mouse is about 20 to 30 grams. And 30 grams is pushing it. 20 is going to be a lot more average for most house mice. So they can be half as big as a house mouse, which is so small. Grief. And since Dunnerts are marsupials... They give birth to tiny little pink jelly bean babies that are very underdeveloped. Do you want to guess how small a Dunner Joey is? Not in weight, but size. God, okay. Let me think this through. Um, Opossums give birth to (laughs) honeybee-sized dinks. So Dunnerts that are half the size of a house mouse. Um... They probably give birth to flea-sized oh. <laughs> little beans. That would 
I mean, you're not too far off, I guess. The, I saw it <laughs> described as smaller than a grain of rice. Oh, so, no, that's so small. Like, I want our listeners, like, please, if you have rice in your house, like, put a grain of rice in your hand and think of that as being a little Joey. Like, I, I, I... I don't know if you can hear my brain, but, like, it's so weird to think about. It's so small. <laughs> are we, wait, are we talking about, like, that size for the 10-gram one or the 70-gram one? I think it's kind of, I couldn't find, like, specific details. Because these guys, again, they're very small. They're very, very secretive. We don't know a whole lot about them. So that I think that this might be more towards the more common ones in captivity, which are going to usually like 20, 30 grams. So like not like the big, big ones, but the kind of average sized ones. So I, I don't okay, know. Okay, like the mouse sized ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like the, the second you said that we don't know a lot about them. I was like, hang on a second. I thought you said they were common in the pet trade. Yeah. Are they being bred in captivity or are they being <laughs> harvested from the wild? Like, no. What is yeah, they definitely are bred in captivity fairly successfully. But there's very few species that are in the pet trade. I only know of the fat-tailed mm. dunnert, but I'm sure that that's not true. Okay. So, yeah. It's possible that that little 10-gram dunnert might have flea-sized joeys. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> god imagine like picking one up and doing like a little like lice comb and it's like oh i just is that a is that a parasite oh. or is it its baby trying to crawl to the pouch? oh my gosh ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah wild <laughs> and speaking of their pouch and this is true from a lot of the animals in this in this family of uh i don't i'm so bad at latin names but it's Dasyuridae? D-A... Oh, Dasyuridae. Yeah, yeah. There you go. But yeah, this this whole family, the mouse-like marsupials, the quals, the Tasmanian devils, all these guys are pretty primitive as far as marsupials go, and they have very primitive pouches that some of them, it's like little more than like a fold in the skin versus a proper pouch as like what we think of koalas and kangaroos and possums having. So... Just keep that in mind as we go forward. I, how? Is it a pocket? Like what? I don't know. A fold of skin? <laughs> yeah. Is it just like called a pouch because it's got like a nip-nip in there? Yes. Or... Yeah. Okay. The teats are within the pouch. It's just a very primitive pouch that is not, yeah. Even like within a couple weeks the joeys will often outgrow the pouch and they still have to just like shove their faces inside of like the skin flap to get a drink but mom <laughs> is running around and they're just like dangling off her butt her belly <laughs> oh my gosh i love yeah, it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and these little dunnerts they are nocturnal predators so even though they're very small they're ferocious little guys and they eat mostly <laughs> insects spiders things like that but the larger ones will take on small lizards, frogs, or even other small mammals. Yes. <laughs> what are their teeth like? Uh, tiny and sharp. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I just love them. They're so fun. Like, 
I, I'm sure that I've like seen pictures of Dunnerts or like heard of them vaguely, but I definitely never did any research on them before I suddenly decided, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to do Dunnerts. I don't even know what led me to this decision, <laughs> but it was a great decision. <laughs> Is it your deep and everlasting love of smammals? Probably. That probably was definitely yeah. part of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, petition for more smammal episodes and less megafauna episodes. Oh, yeah. I think that was part of it, too. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I don't even like megafauna. Like, why have I done a whole episode on megafauna? Like, I love the little guys <laughs> that get eaten all the time. Everybody that's down on, like, the bottom of the food chain and nobody cares about and apparently lives in, like, cracks in the soil. Like... This guy is up my alley. Like, he's, oh my gosh. And he's cute, too. Like, oh, perfect. Yeah, got, like, a little pointy fox nose. Yeah. Like, what, what, how could you not? Yeah, I, I get it, man. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so that's kind of Dunnerts as a whole. Now I want to focus yeah. specifically on one species called the stripe-faced Dunnert. And again, I semi-arbitrarily picked this one. But the thing that really amazed me with these guys, the specific species, was that they actually have the shortest gestation period of any mammal. Uh, I'm going to have you guess what that is, but I'm going to give you some other numbers to kind of help you guess. Okay? Thank you so much. Okay, yes, let's go. Okay, so house mouse... Not a not a marsupial, but same size. So size reference first. House mouse, 21 days. Okay. So now some marsupials, kangaroos and koalas, or about 30 to 34 day gestation period. Wombats have about a 20 day gestation period. So what do you think the striped-faced dunnert has for their gestation period? Can I ask a clarifying question? Yes. Okay, I I don't know a lot about this terminology mm-hmm. for marsupials. It's been way too long since my mammalogy class. <laughs> uh, is is gestation in these guys still considered like time till birth? Yes, and birth for okay. these guys is purely you know crawling up the belly to go suckle on the teats. So yeah, it's just like coming out the vagina. Yes, or vagina is plural depending on the species. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, just checking. Twelve days. Twelve. Yes. That's really close. It's actually 11 days. <gasps> no. Oh, I was very close. Yeah. Okay, okay. Sick. That's Isn't not that any time at all. That is so <laughs> fast. No. <laughs> I mean, I I guess they're just like creating a little like premature fetus that they're giving birth to that's less than like half the size of a grain of rice. Yeah. So it doesn't take a but, long time to cook. They just, they just pop guess. on out. <laughs> But, like, it still takes a long time for kangaroos to cook their little jelly beans, uh-huh. so. Yeah. 30 days. We're just <laughs> we're just using some great terminology. <laughs> Nip-nip. <laughs> Cooking babies. Yes. Gosh. Hey, we're accessible. Um, <laughs> or something. <laughs> uh, can I ask a follow-up question? Please. What is it called when a marsupial is big enough to leave the pouch? Like, is it fledging? Is it... <laughs> is it... What's the other weaning? What is well, that period called? They're not weaned when they leave the pouch. So it it wouldn't be weaning. But I I don't know if there is a specific term for when they leave the pouch. 
usually, like, whenever you're looking up marsupial information, it's just like, they leave the pouch at 30 days or something like that, and then are fully weaned by X months old. Um, okay. But there should be a name if it doesn't exist. I'm going to choose to call it fledging because it seems really <laughs> analogous to baby birds leaving the nest and then continuing to beg their parents for food. Okay, okay. I like it. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so that's my favorite fact about the striped-faced dunner, but they're just really cool. Uh, so we'll keep talking about them because I love them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Can you describe what they look like yes. to, for our audience's sake? Yes. And also for mine, mm-hmm. but mostly theirs. <laughs> <laughs> so they have a max length of about 20 centimeters, which is 7.8 inches. So this is a bigger species of dunner. And half of that is tail, which is true for most of them. They have super long tails. Their max mm. weight is about 25 grams. And many individuals of this particular species are smaller than this. They have super big buggy eyes and fairly large ears. And like I said, some species like the fat-tailed dunner that I sent you and will be on the website have just absolutely gigantic ears. These guys have slightly smaller ears. Okay. <laughs> and they have that really super narrow and pointed nose like a shrew. So, again, I, I made you go get that grain of rice earlier. Right now, Google stripe-faced dunner. Oh, and they have a stripe on their face. That's why they're called the stripe-faced dunner. So... You know. <laughs> okay. Is it like a like a chipmunk stripe or like no, a American badger stripe? No, it's it's not that um, distinct at all. It's just kind of like a black smudge between oh. their eyes going up between their ears a little bit. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, it's like it's got like a really extended widow's peak. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> We're accessible. Yes. <laughs> mohawk. Little mo- mohawk dinner. Oh, they're very cute. They're cool. so cute. Ugh. Also, their tails are very fat. I don't know why this one doesn't get the fat-tailed mm-hmm. trait in its name, but... Yeah, so <laughs> what a great transition to my next part I wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> beautiful. <laughs> uh, so these guys, all the Dunnerts, have a really cool adaptation where they store fat in their tail. So it's Ooh. not just the fat-tailed Dunnert that does this. It's all species of dun- Dunnerts. Because Australia is a harsh place to live. So they store up that fat, just like a camel stores fat in its hump. And then that way they can break that fat down for calories later when food is scarce. So super talented little babies. And that tail becomes like carrot shaped. Like I'm going to send you another picture. When times are good for these guys, times are good. And their tails get so big. Are you ready for this? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So they can... Oh, it's like standing on it. Sorry. It's it's thick. (laughs) It's like almost as thick as his head. Like, gigantic. They store a ton of fat in there. I love it. (laughs) It looks like a tuber. Like, it straight up looks like their tail... It's a carrot. Like, formed a tuber. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And since they are so small, they have a pretty high metabolism, pretty common for a lot of small mammals. So it it really is a short-term solution for storage of uh, calories, but it works pretty well for them. And 
you know, again, this is just like camels or, you know, things like leopard geckos, even platypus, they will store fat in their tail as well. So a lot of animals do this, but not quite to the extreme that the dunnert does, where their tail gets like two, three times as thick. So, and I did, I kind of went on like a rabbit hole with the fat tail thing. So... (laughs) <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna follow it to its conclusion. So <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> One thing that I found really interesting is that it's not just grassland or desert species that will do this. I actually found this species of lemur, it's the dwarf lemur that lives on the forests of Madagascar that will store fat in their tails. Like that is something that they are very well known for. And we always think of forests as being, you know, just full of food and never ever experiencing hardships. But when you're a tiny little lemur, you're trying to avoid getting eaten. So they don't want to spend a lot of time looking for food. So whenever they find food, they just gorge themselves and get this nice little (laughs) fat deposit in their tail. Beautiful. Yes. There's, I, I can't not talk about these guys just really quick. There's also a group of sheep <laughs> called the <laughs> fat-tailed sheep that store fat in their tails. Wow. And it's very common whenever you keep sheep to dock their tails, but you can't do that with the fat-tailed sheep. And if you look up <laughs> fat-tailed sheep that are shaved, they actually oh, got like no. a booty. Like... They are thick with two C's. <laughs> oh, oh no. I had no idea. I've never seen one sheared before, but I looked that up and I was like blown away. <laughs> I feel like this is, is a diseased sheep that I'm looking at. Can you please confirm? We can delete this out of the actual oh, episode. Gosh. But like, that's not oh, normal, no, right? No, no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was the result coming up. And I was like, oh God, you really, yeah, they do have big badonkadonks. <laughs> Oh my god. I almost said badonkadonked, but I was like, I don't know if that's like... Uh, Wait, is this is this more more like a real thing? <laughs> I've never seen it to that extreme, but maybe. I will show you a couple of pictures that I found. Okay, all I'm getting are things that look not real. Yeah. Oh, those are some look like well-defined boobies. butts. I know. It's wild. Here's some more. I'm just going to fill up your whole thing with sheep butts. Oh, my God. Is that their tail? It looks like an arm. Oh, yeah. Their tail is huge because it's where they store all their fat. (laughs) It seriously looks like an arm. Like, that one has a black tip on it. Like, it's got a hoof hanging off, too. Yeah. Gosh, look at those. Why is my result so much different from yours? I don't know. And maybe that's real. (laughs) I mean, I don't know because I'm seeing some crazy ones, too. But, I mean, what was going on with those sheep to, like, this one looks like it's from the scientific paper. So, I trust this one. Um, a Tibetan sheep. Like, what? <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. Um, like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> oh, I'm really, this is really disturbing, to be honest. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, what is, what is this? Nicole, what is this thing that we've uncovered? I'm so sorry. Oh, God, look at that. <laughs> oh, God. What is happening? But, like. Oh, I'm so upset. <laughs> but having a livestock animal that can survive really harsh conditions is really important for a lot of people that, you know, live in the steppe or, you know, live in arid conditions. So fat-tailed sheep, 
are a miracle for some people because they can just and when they thrive get big old they... booties and be just fine <laughs> thank you for that. you're so welcome also how dare you i'm gonna i'm gonna send a picture of one of these to the group chat without context please do all right um how do we get back into how I, do we transition? I, I got it it's fine <laughs> okay because <laughs> we've stayed right on line with my outline so far which like never happens every time you asked a question i was like oh that's exactly the next thing i was going to talk about so <laughs> so these guys are experts at surviving harsh conditions and even in captivity, there's actually a lot of places that will do starve days once a week for their captive dunnerts. So Wildlife Sydney, a zoological institution in Australia, will do starve days on Wednesdays. And it's not that they just don't give them any food, they just offer them less. And that's just to try to encourage the dunnerts to use their stored fat so they don't get too big. So, yeah. <laughs> Super cool. And this, these were with fat-tailed dunnerts, um, but obviously they all store fat, so you could definitely do that with any of them. And I just thought that was mm -hmm. really interesting, because that's not normally something you do with your captive animal. Like, you always give them food, you always give them water. That's like caretaking 101, but not with dunnerts. Mm -hmm. So. Fascinating. Yeah. And... Harkening back to that 11-day gestation period, which is just wild, mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about mar marsupials as a whole and why this type of reproduction is not common, but it's not uncommon. You know, what <laughs> has led to this being used? Why is it useful and good for them? So... Just so we're all on the same page, there's two different developmental strategies that animals will use, and they lead to different kinds of young being born, whether that's live birth or hatched from an egg, and that is precocial and altricial. So precocial animals are ones where at birth or at hatching, the young are pretty much ready to go. Their eyes and ears are open, they're furred or feathered, and they are just generally very well developed right at the start. For example, horses, when they're born, they're ready to run within hours of birth. There is a species of wildebeest, I believe the blue wildebeest, that within 30 minutes, it's up and it's going, which is super fast for any animal. Wow. Obviously, this is not what marsupials do. <laughs> they use the other hmm. kind of development. So, altricial are the ones that are born and they need some TLC from their parents. They are often born blind, deaf, and very helpless without fur or feathers, but not all of them. So this is very much a spectrum. Some animals like baby mice and rats are, you know, blind, deaf, just little pink jelly beans trying their best. <laughs> but, you know, some <laughs> animals might be a little bit more developed or a little bit less just depending on the species or the group of animals. I say all of this because marsupial moms are the queens of altricial young. Their tiny little underdeveloped pink, wriggly, gross little jelly beans are so small and so very helpless for quite a long time. But they can also have that super short gestation period 
which can be very, very helpful. So trying to escape a predator when you've doubled your weight because you're pregnant is just asking for trouble. It's not easy to do. (laughs) And it sounds harsh, but since they aren't spending a lot of time or energy on growing their young before birth, if they lose a litter, it's not a hard loss for them and they can hopefully try again that Mm. year. Whereas with animals like our megafauna, our elephants, and our giraffes, if they lose a baby, they've put a ton of time and effort into that that baby, and it's a really can really set them back. So, having those little pink jelly beans, not a big deal if you lose them in the eyes of a dunner, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm not just like making this stuff up. It's not just like a wild hypothesis. It is very well documented that marsupials. If they are being chased, they will straight up dump their young and use that as a distraction so that she can escape. No. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. Oh, wow. Life is harsh. You gotta do what you gotta do. (laughs) Yeah. Dump the beans. Yep. (laughs) And run for it. Wow. You know, it it seems weird to me that it would make a difference having the longer gestation and still carrying the young Mm -hmm. inside of you versus having young that you've already developed a lot of time or or put a lot of time into that you're still carrying around in your pouch. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those little jelly beans, when like the jelly jelly beans, marsupial joeys. Here we go. We'll stop calling things jelly beans because they're all jelly beans. Marsupial joeys are extremely underdeveloped. Mom has put relatively, compared to placental mammals, very little effort into raising those joeys when they're first born. So, you know, even having a placenta and like growing an, a, a child inside of a placenta, it's it's very taxing on a, a mom. And, you know, something that was also quoted a lot, and it's kind of gross, but I'm going to say it anyways. It's a whole lot easier to birth something that's the size of a grain of rice versus, like, you know, like, 5-10% of your body weight. So, no, yeah, I was kind of slip too, on out. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a lot of little things that kind of add up to the life of marsupial being something that works really well. And, like, by the time they're struggling to walk with the baby mm-hmm. in their pouch, like, right before they, they fledge, <laughs> like, when they come out, they're pretty much rearing to go. Yeah. Yeah. By the time they're leaving the pouch, usually mom will continue, for most marsupials at least, she'll continue nursing them. But at that point, if they're out of the pouch and they're hopping around or crawling around, they're usually pretty well good to go. So, mm. And there's a lot of placental mammals who can be just laden with babies. Yes. Give birth to them and, like, be nowhere near done yes. caring for them because they're so helpless. Oh, like yeah. Puppies or, or, yeah. Yeah. So not only can they use their babies as a distraction from predators, um, <laughs> but many marsupials <laughs> also have the ability to raise back-to-back litters due, their, due to their very unique reproductive system. So compared to placental mammals, they essentially have a doubled reproductive system. Female marsupials have two uteri, which can both be used to raise young. 
They can have a litter in their pouch and another litter of beans cooking away in the oven. <laughs> Once the young in the pouch leave, the younger <laughs> litter is born and she's able to get pregnant again. And while this cycle of eternal pregnancy may sound like a horror story to some humans, <laughs> for a group of animals that often live in very harsh environments, this is a game changer. You can raise a ton of young in a relatively short amount of time and with fairly little, you know, effort, at least until birth. So mm. and then you just toss them away to distract a predator. So yeah, you know, and they can also yeah. halt reproduction, reproduction too. So if conditions aren't good, especially like red kangaroos are very well docu documented doing this, they can halt the development of their young until <laughs> conditions improve and then continue on with the cycle. So wait, very cute. Like they can, they can pause the development of the young. Yes. And they can. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. 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 Like they're, the eggs are already fertilized and they can just be like, mm, I'm going to wait a little bit. And then they're like, okay, now let's do it. Diapause. Wow. Embryonic diapause. diapause. Yeah. Fancy. I always forget that that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> There are some other things in marsupial reproductive system that are also doubled, but I'll just let you uh, research that on your own. So, <laughs> thanks. And one final little rabbit hole that I've gone down a couple times now is why are there so many marsupials in Australia? Just what about the environment has led to two-thirds of all known marsupials being in Australia. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that's okay. a lot. Yeah, shoot. <laughs> so there are less than 300 marsupials that we know of, and about 120 of them can be found in South America, with how many in North America? Do you know? Uh, you know. One. Think about it. Yeah, one! <laughs> <laughs> The Virginia opossum is North America's only marsupial. In South America, there's like a hundred species of, of possum and then some other little weird guys thrown in there. And then Australia just has so many. So I feel like I've told you this before, but do you know where marsupials originally evolved? That's what that word is. <laughs> South America? Good guess. But no, it was actually North America. Oh, shoot, that's right. It's like the camels. <laughs> yeah. So they originally, you know, evolved in North America, went down to South America, down into Antarctica, and then over to Australia when all of these continents were uh, together about 55 million years ago. So this was a long time ago that they made this journey. And as they moved from North to South America and then over to Australia, they just kept diversifying into more and more species. And I just think that's fascinating that they started in North America and now North America only has one left. Yeah. And then, like, they ended in Australia, but Australia has two thirds of them. Like, wild. That's so cool. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> something about Australia and that climate, they just really thrived in. And 
went extinct elsewhere. <laughs> and I, I feel yeah. like part of it is, you know, this ability to have the embryonic diapause to raise back-to-back litters and to just generally be really tough animals that are good at surviving in harsh conditions. They, they love Australia, whereas a lot of other mammals <laughs> don't do so well there. So just fascinating. I love it. Yeah. That's great. And isn't it true that the uh, Virginia opossum, I feel like I've heard this, this might not be true, Mm -hmm. but um, I think it migrated up into North America from South America. So at one point, that would mean all of the North American marsupials went extinct. Yeah, that's what I've always been told. So maybe we've just been lied to our whole lives, like how camels have water in their humps, but that's (laughs) what I've always been told. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense that at one point they migrated into South America, went extinct in North America, and then during the Great American Interchange, Mm -hmm. recolonized that one species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah, marsupials. They're wild. And I love them. And it was really hard not to make like a two hour long podcast. So I tried to be (laughs) concise. (laughs) You you did a great job. Thank you so much. And real quick, let's harken back to our beautiful, adorable Dunnerts. Please. You know, as I said, there are a few species that are considered threatened, and most, if not all of them, are seeing a pretty drastic decline in population numbers, but all is not lost, and there's some really concrete, easy, easy, in quotation marks, ways <laughs> that we can help them bounce back. So a big help to these guys is controlled burns, especially if we can do it in small patches, so rotational burning, instead of just burning 100 acres, do 25 every year and rotate that so that they have a place to retreat to. And this is usually a really good fire management strategy, no matter where you are, just because you Mm want to have those safe havens for animals. Controlling grazing is also very important. Again, rotational grazing, very, very useful. And making sure that, you know, you're not overstocking your land. And feral livestock, including camels, (laughs) are an issue in Australia. And they just, you know, eat all the vegetation. And then these cute little dunnerts have nowhere to live, except for, I guess, the cracks in the soil. But, you know... Then the insects that they eat have nowhere to live, so then they die. So, <laughs> uh, no. and of course, like we said, keep your cats indoors. Are are dunnards omnivores or carnivores? They are considered nocturnal carnivores. Sick. Yes, I love when tiny little cute things are actually murder machines. But that's the dunnard. What a wonderful animal. Australia, you get a pass for this one. You produce something really cool, really cute, deadly, but not in like the normal Australia way. Right. In a way that uh, makes me want to live there instead of run away from it. So <laughs> good job, Australia. Yes. Yeah. Even <laughs> even their small mammals are extremely deadly, but just not to humans. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, thanks, Nicole. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything else that you need to add? Nope, that's... Oh, I will say something that I found interesting about the striped-faced dunner is that they can live up to five years, which is really good for a small mammal. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Yeah. Some of the other species of dunnerts only live like two, three years, which is more common for small mammals. 
but five mm-hmm. years like that's not like max that's like average is five years for these guys it's not uncommon Dang. for them to reach five years so super cool and hmm. i will say that a lot of the stuff that we know about them is from cap- captive animals but it's fairly safe to say that a lot of that can be extrapolated to wild individuals we don't know what their social life is like in the wild which i think is interesting and i wish that we did but yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. i looked for a long time because i love the social intricacies of like especially small mammals just because they tend to have really weird social hierarchies and stuff but mm. yeah couldn't find anything really on dunnerts just guesses disappointing mm-hmm. researchers yep figure it out they're so small though they're hiding in the cracks <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, give them very tiny radio calls. Oh gosh. (laughs) Oh man. Okay, well, uh, thank you everyone for listening to The Best Bio. As always, if you enjoyed this episode about Dunnerts, please share our podcast with a friend and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. It helps us more than we can say. Uh, Follow us on social medias, links in the show notes. And you can even leave us a voice message or text us. That's it. So we'll see you guys next week. (laughs) Okay, so Nicole here again. I'm not done talking about Dunnerts. I really needed to tell you one more weird thing I found. Apparently, marsupials, I think all marsupials, but the very least Dunnerts, they don't even have functioning lungs when they're first born. And they breathe through their skin. And I don't mean like they get a little bit of oxygen through their skin. Julia Creek Dunnerts have been found to get up to 90% of their oxygen through their skin. And it's not until like 21 days old that they start getting more than 50% of their oxygen through their primitive lungs. Like, why is no one talking about this? Okay, bye. Have a great day.